Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Today, improving our opinion of police. Waiting for Trump's mugshot. Humanity is on thin ice. An interesting nugget from Canada's finance minister, picking the best small town. And I also talk about P. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. I just want to tell you how humbled and proud I am of our members who continue to serve our community, this community, under such horrific circumstances. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That is the voice of Edmonton Police Chief Dale McPhee talking about the recent killings of uh, two constables in Edmonton, 30-year-old Brett Ryan, 35-year-old Travis Jordan, uh, shot and killed in the wee hours of the morning while responding to a domestic call in that city. And it really paints the picture of how dangerous this job is and how the public's perception of police is not matching what they deliver on a day-to-day basis. These men and women put their lives on the line every day, every day to protect us. And yes, I know there have been some bad apples here and there, like any occupation would have. And of course, it is magnified when we're talking about the law. But at the end of the day, police officers in this country are doing a phenomenal job of trying their darndest to keep us safe. Easier said than done in many cases, including what we saw in Edmonton. There is a 25-year veteran of the Edmonton Police Service. He's no longer a cop in Edmonton, but he has been there and done that on the front lines now a criminologist and the Associate Chair of Justice Studies at Norquest College in Alberta. Dan Jones is his name, and he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. I do want to give you uh, a minute or so to reflect on what has happened in Edmonton. Uh, how is the community recovering? Yeah, you know, it's it's been a it's been a couple of days. It's It's been tragic. It's, you know, I've had lots of conversations with members. I've had conversations with community members and friends. Um, everyone's reeling. It's, uh, it, it brings back to reality the potential harms that, that policing has. And policing is not the most dangerous job in the world. We know that statistics show there's other jobs that are more dangerous, but it's one of the few jobs in the world where a death result, results in someone else's purposeful actions. And it's also a job where when there's a death that happens, everyone doesn't get to stop. Um, you know, most construction sites or any construction site or any other job, when someone gets gets killed on the in the line of uh, of duty or work that they're doing, everyone gets to stop and they get to pause and they get to reflect and they get to uh, grieve. Not in policing. Policing is inherently different that way. Where you, if you're on working west northwest division and there's a homicide of two police officers in west division. And that radio call goes off. You got to answer that next call, whether that be a, a domestic violence call or a, a, a trouble with person. And it's one of those it's, you just got to keep going, and it makes it a very, very different kind of level of uh, sadness and inability to really grieve. I wanted to get you on the show today because you've shared some really, uh, you know, expressive views that really hit me. Uh, in in a very right way, because I'm I'm on the same wavelength as you are. Although you have the experience in the field, and that's about how the public views police officers, because it has become extremely negative 
in the last couple of years? What's your sense on how police are viewed in each and every community? Yeah, since the tragic and terrible murder of George Floyd, there has been a discourse around policing that police are the uh, are bad, are vilified, are the enemy. And I've always been a big proponent for reforming and changing policing and how we do things in the system. But that vilification uh, really impacted uh, police officers across the across the board, specifically Canadian and and I would say American, but let's go with Canadian to the point where you see a lot of our members are off. Um, any the members that are off work or off uh, due to moral or uh, psychological injury. And I think it's compounding that is compounded by the fact that the people that, that the discourse around policing is so negative. And you have these individuals going out there working in the community, doing everything they can. Um, and that discourse actually creates some negativity. And the re- there's research from Tyler and Tankaby and Bottoms that shows if the police are seen as legitimate, where the public believes in what they do, there's less violence, there's less crime, there's less reoffending, there's less need for use of force. Uh, but the uh, the reverse is exactly the same. The less the police are seen as legitimate, as a as a uh, the the that people will actually use force against police more, offend more, and the, the the world becomes a more violent place. Dan, we only got about a minute. Has the public trust has that legitimacy been eroded? And and if so, how do we get that back? Well, you know what I'm going to say this right now. I think it has for sure. But I also think in this tragedy that we've seen. We see that that silent majority coming out and supporting the police, and I think it's showing that there is a public level of public trust. And I think what we need to do is honor that. And I think that media needs to uh, at least take some responsibility and and um, publish those positive things and talk about the positive side, not just the negative side. And I think that's something that's happened over the past several years. Is it's been really focused on the negative, which has really impacted the members, which does impact impact the violence and crime rates. That's a very good point. Dan, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Dan Jones, Associate Chair of Justice Studies at Norquest College, a former Edmonton police officer. That community still reeling today. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I think it's extremely important that people have a right to express themselves and in, 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 and express the frustration that they feel uh, to see a, uh, a liberal Manhattan DA poised to indict a former president of the United States. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin waking you up on a Tuesday morning. Former U.S. Vice President Mike Pence there saying the potential arrest of Donald Trump, perhaps today, is not what the American people need, adding that such an arrest would be a product of the, quote, radical left. Trump has said that he expects to be arrested today as part of a criminal case Uh, involving hush money payments to a former porn star. Now, if that happens, if he is arrested, he will become the first ever former president to face criminal charges. Ozzy Pebara is a breaking political news reporter with The Washington Post and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ozzy, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Uh, Give us a lay of the land here in Manhattan. What are we expecting to see later today, perhaps? That is a great question and only... Uh, one person really knows, and that's Al, and that's the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Van, uh, Bag, uh, Bragg. Sorry, uh, he has not confirmed what former President Donald Trump has said publicly, which is that he expects to be arrested on uh, in connection to this case. Now, this case is several years old. Many of the details have been 
uh, made public before, but it, but in broad strokes, um, one of Trump's former lawyers said that he gave money to a woman who said she had a uh, an affair with Trump and then was paid to keep quiet about it. Um, so whether or not that money was properly accounted for as a campaign expense during the 2016 campaign or whether it was logged as some type of legal expense for Trump's lawyer, that's sort of where this case really rests now that it ha- now because it's happening after Trump announced has announced his third run for the presidency, it throws it into a much more complicated uh, political arena. So the Manhattan district attorney has some choices to make and everyone is just bracing to see what happens next. If the district attorney does go ahead and pursues uh, an indictment of former President Trump, many will see it as a political move. Is it more than that, however? It, it is hard to remove the perception of politics. Trump is an announced candidate, and he is often uh, sought to describe any legal action against him as being unfair, politically motivated. Now, Trump has a very large following. He has a very large platform, even though he was removed for a while from, you know, Facebook and Twitter. Um, it is hard to it, it is hard for people who like him to see this as anything other than a political attack. Now, even some um, people who are not supportive of President Donald Trump um, may question the veracity of these facts. Uh, and the case against him, it, it is arguably not as strong as some of the other charges that he has faced in the past. Um, but it's happening as Trump is running for president. So it's it's hard to remove that that perspective, that, that this is somehow related to or connected to politics. But the Manhattan D- District Attorney... Uh, definitely has an opportunity to make his case that this is something other than that. You referenced that uh, former President Trump is facing really more serious charges, in in fact, relation Mm -hmm. to the 2020 election in Georgia, which he's alleged to try to overturn that result. Does this at all from New York uh, deter any of the, uh, I I guess, uh, hyperbole around what Mr. Trump is facing? No, I, I think it just makes it sort of more complicated for for different jurisdictions that are proceeding forward with cases against Trump. Uh, I think there's like a logistical challenge there. But if you are President Trump, if you are a supporter of Trump, or if you're just sort of like uh, a supporter of the Republican Party, but not necessarily Trump, this may actually make it easier for that person to say, look, it's unfair. Look how they're treating him. Look, there, there, there's something askew. There's something wrong. There, there's something um, coordinated, but like the more uh, criticism and legal action that's taken against Trump, which is borne by his own actions, if somebody is predisposed to supporting Trump, they may just view this all as one coordinated effort and just dismiss it all as like noise and unfairness. We got about, but, but, we, but there is a logistical challenge there. Absolutely, we got about thirty seconds. Or I'd imagine yeah. people in Manhattan and and in many other places, D.C. for example, are on pins and needles. Given what happened on January sixth with the insurrection, because Trump has already called out to his supporters to say, "Hey, come and support me." Yeah, the, uh, the call to protest definitely put some people on edge, and everyone is just waiting to see who shows up. So far, there has not been anything. But as we've seen in the past, things can turn around really quickly. Absolutely. We'll be waiting on that. Ozzy, appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. 
Thanks for having me. Ozzy Pibara is a breaking political news reporter at The Washington Post, breaking down what potentially could happen today with former President Donald Trump. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Humans are responsible for virtually all global heating over the last 200 years. Humanity is on thin ice And that ice is melting fast. That is U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres delivering a report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change saying leaders of developed countries must commit to reaching net zero. Is it achievable? And if so, how far away are we from doing that? Ian Borsick is the Interim Executive Director at Environment Hamilton and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ian, welcome to the show. How are you? Very good, Rick. How about you? I'm good. I, I'm not surprised by anything that I heard. Hey, what about you? No, I think um, that is going to be the theme uh, going forward until we reach the point when uh, the news becomes good. And I think at that point, we could say that it's uh, becoming surprising. Uh, our poll question of the day today is asking listeners, do you think Canada is doing its fair share to combat climate change? And right now, it is a 50-50 split. Some saying yes, others saying no. What do you think? Um, well, we're not. Um, in in Canada, we are some of the highest emitters per capita. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean to shame anyone who's driving their vehicle right now or anything like that. Um, it's just that Canada, through our industry and through our habits and through our lifestyles, we, we produce an incredible amount of uh, emissions. And we have, over the last decade, um, really seen a failure at, at all levels of government to make serious uh, strides in achieving re- re- emission reductions. Um, and quite frankly, for a long time there, it really looked like Canada and Australia were sort of the uh, the, the international villains when it came to uh, over-promising and under-delivering. And Australia is starting to make those turnarounds, but here in Canada, we're still approving new fossil fuel extraction projects. We're going to be spending upwards to $30 billion on that Trans Mountain pipeline, which will be locking in emissions for decades to come if it, if it, if it is ever finished. Uh, we've approved new drilling off the coast in the Maritimes. Uh, even here locally in Hamilton, we're looking at a new Enbridge pipeline to service Ulster Middle Defasco. So, um, you know, looking at what the experts have been saying and what uh, other groups, not just the IPCC, but groups like the International Energy Agency, which has historically been much more conservative than the IPCC, um, they're saying there can't be any new fossil fuel infrastructure. We have to start winding this industry down. We have to start uh, transitioning to renewables faster than we are. And um, in the new IPCC report, um, if anyone's listening who's interested, you can read it. Uh, there's a summary for policymakers, which is the most readable version, because that's what uh, you know they present to politicians, essentially. Um, and it's quite clear that we have time to avert the worst case scenario, that the technologies are are there, that we have, you know, me- measures and and means to ensure that we can mitigate and adapt to climate change. But um, unfortunately, our elected officials and our leaders are, are not making those choices for us. Ian Borsick is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ian is the Interim Executive Director of Environment Hamilton. We're talking about the latest climate change report from the UN. You said that we still have time to avert a worst-case scenario. How long do we have? 
Well, the IPCC report that came out, and this is the synthesis report for the most recent uh, analysis that they've done, um, more or less lays out that we've locked in um, the warming that we've seen already. So we've seen about 1.1 degrees warming uh, on, an a on a global average. So all of the extreme weather that we've seen, uh, the you know extreme floods in Pakistan, the, ex the heat dome in BC, um, all of that has been locked in. Um, it will take decades to reverse that, um, if we can reverse that. Um, I, I'm personally a little uh, skeptical about carbon capture as a viable technology in the in the near future. Um, but ultimately, what it lays out is that we have to half our emissions uh, by 50%. So we have to reduce emissions by 50% by 2030, which is coming up pretty rapidly. Um, the, again, you know, the technology is there to do this. It's just we are not making the decisions to do so, uh, that is a result of, you know, fossil fuel companies being ingratiated in our government structures. If you look at the federal programs that are being offered to homeowners right now for retrofitting your home to make it more energy efficient, it's partnered with Enbridge. So, you know, we have to really, as a society, challenge our politicians to push back against these extremely powerful corporations that have an invested interest in maintaining the status quo, but uh, as it's laid out in this report, the status quo is is quite literally strangling our our entire planet to death. And uh, you know, normal folks like you and me, Rick, we're we're not going to be uh, able to survive things um, as well as they are as 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 things get worse. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of folks in the world, a, a small number of them, who will manage fine in their yachts and the like, but. For normal folks like us, we really need to demand our politicians to step up and act in our best interests. Even if those transitions might seem radical right now, looking at the changes that we've seen from 1.1 degree warming, uh, it's only going to get significantly worse. And just imagining how much worse the things will be if the status quo continues for someone who was born, you know, during the pandemic. Um, if you thought, you know, raising a kid during the pandemic was difficult, uh, it, you know, in 30 years, if we don't change the status quo of how things are going, uh, it's the the world's going to be very different. Got a couple more minutes with Ian Borsuk from Environment Hamilton. We're talking about the latest UN report on climate change. Canada has set eight different emissions targets since Kyoto 1988. I think that was the year and has failed to meet any of them. Are, are the targets too bold or are we just not committed enough to reaching those targets? I think what we've seen is that uh, missing these targets doesn't mean anything. Um, we have consistently elected and re-elected politicians who have, you know, made these targets and then not met them. Um, you know, we have politicians who bought a pipeline and then turn around and tell us that they believe in the just transition. Uh, we need to start uh, calling out what, you know, is is quite frankly BS. Um, we need to start really holding our politicians accountable and demand that they not only familiarize themselves with, you know, this report, um, but understand what that means. Um, you know, reading from the report right now, climate change is a threat to human well-being and planetary health. And they say that with a very high confidence, which is about as close as the IPC, IPCC can get in these reports to saying that this is true 100%. Um, they say that there is a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. And that's with a very high confidence. So, you know, the, the window is closing right now. And in 20 years, uh, if we don't change the status quo, we're going to be seeing the, the results of these bad decisions for decades. And we really need to start taking this more seriously. We need to ensure that 
you know, the provincial government isn't building out urban sprawl, but is building sustainable and adaptable uh, communities. We need to ensure that our municipality of Hamilton is following through expanding transit, making it easier to ensure that when flooding and extreme heat help, uh, happens, that it doesn't you know kill our residents. Um, but most importantly, we need to hold our federal uh, government to account. And right now, um, we haven't been doing that uh, as a society. And, you know, in reality, it's extremely hard. It's there's multiple crises unfolding, a housing crisis, uh, the pandemic is still happening, while climate change is happening. And Ultimately, I think what we're looking at right now is a serious, a serious threat to to humanity on an existential level, and it's uh, it's hard to wrap your head around for sure. Um, but I think you know we need to demand better of our elected politicians, or if they're not going to do better, we need to find new politicians. Sounds like we got some work to do, Ian. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. No, yeah, thank you so much, Rick. Ian Borsick, Interim Executive Director, Environment Hamilton. Poll question of the day since our discussion began remains unchanged. 50-50 split and whether you think Canada is doing its fair share to combat climate change. Send me a text on this at 905-645-3221. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Federal budget is going to come down on March the 28th and Federal Finance Minister Christopher Freeland has confirmed that the budget will contain quote, additional targeted inflation relief for vulnerable Canadians. What does that mean? What does that look like? Mike Moffitt is an associate professor of business, economics and public policy at Ivy School of Business at Western University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mike, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. What is your best guess about what targeted inflation relief is going to look like? Well, they can't go too far. Like, there's not much that uh, the government can do to directly control prices, like like food prices and, and energy prices and so on. They tried that back in the 1970s, and it didn't work too well. So my guess would be trying to give uh, targeted income supplements to, to families. So that could be uh, one-time increases in GST or HST rebates, that kind of thing. And there's a bit of an irony there that they can't push that too far. If they put more money into people's pockets, they'll go out and spend some of that money, uh, making the inflation problem worse. So it's a challenge for the federal government where they're trying to to help people uh, deal with the effects of inflation while at the same time not having that inflation get worse. Yeah, that is a delicate balance. How do you provide relief and, you know, keep inflation down or bring it lower? Can Can both of those items be achieved? It's certainly going to be a challenge. Now, luckily, we had some inflation data that just came out about 20 minutes ago showing that uh, Canadian inflation is down to 5.2%. It was at 5.9 the previous month. So um, so things are, are trending in the right direction. And I think that's what the government's hoping for, that uh, we, we get back to about the 2 to 3% uh, range by this time next year. And in the meantime, provide targeted support. So it can't be blanketed to everyone because that would increase inflation. But for, you know, the, the lower, you know, 20 to 30% of households with lower incomes and those on fixed incomes, I think the government does have some ability to maneuver particularly if that's uh, coupled with uh, spending uh, restraint in other areas. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Mike Moffitt, a professor at Western University. We're talking about the upcoming budget that Finance Minister Krista Freeland is going to deliver on March the 28th. And we're hearing that this budget is going to address um, health care, the clean economy, housing, other measures that are supposedly good social and economic policy. 
are we expecting a big ticketed budget or does this have to be fiscally responsible? I think the the federal government sending signals that this is not going to be a big a ticketed budget, that uh, the minister has spent a fair bit of time talking about uh, the need uh, to get to get the books back in order. So I'm one of the big things I'll be looking for next week is, is there a pathway to a balanced budget? Are they projecting however many years out that we'll get back to balance. So I don't think there's going to be any large spending increases outside of the ones that have already been uh, announced, like the the provincial health care deals. I think this is going to be smaller, targeted uh, pockets of money and an attempt to, uh, again, reduce uh, reduce the deficit and at least have, shrinking the size of the debt relative to the size of the economy. This is not necessarily tied to the budget, but we've had a couple of bank collapses in the U.S., uh, UBS buying out uh, Credit Suisse. What impact, if any, is this going to have on us here in this country? So, so far, it, it looks like it, it will be a fairly limited impact. Uh, our banking sector is, is rather sound. Um, I think most of the impact will be indirect, uh, that uh, you know this is not helpful for the U.S. economy. And since the U.S. is our largest uh, purchaser of exports, you know when your biggest customer isn't doing well, you're not doing well. But I do want to see in the budget next week um, an analysis of you know what what this means uh, for Canadian banking sector. I wouldn't be surprised if there is some uh, targeted action to help strengthen the bank- banking sector and give uh, Canadians some confidence. So it could be things like increasing insurance on deposits and, and that kind of thing. So I think the federal government has to address that situation in the U.S., but I don't think there's going to be big wholesale reforms coming out of that. Week away from Budget Day here in Canada. Mike, thanks for the analysis. Enjoy the rest of your day. Well, thank you for having me. And as Mike Moffitt, Assistant Professor of Business, Economics and Public Policy, the Ivy School of Business at Western University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As the March Madness basketball tournament in the United States continues this week, there is another bracket brawl that is taking place, and that is the Small Town Tournament of 64. It's back on CHML's brother station, Y108. Listen to Y with Taz and gym in the morning at 6.50 and 8.50 as they determine what is the greatest all-time small town in the Hamilton and London area. Lo and behold, Taz and Jim, hosts of the Taz and Jim Morning Show on Y108, are here with us today. Guys, how are you? Great. We're good, Rick. Good morning, Hamilton. Jim, we'll start with you. This is a this is a cool idea. Why was it important for you guys to put small towns in the Hamilton, London area on a pedestal? Uh, we just have a ton of callers from random small towns all across Ontario. And we generally, for the ones we don't know about, we'll Google and say, where is that? And then we just started kind of falling in love with these quirky little small towns. I, I myself am I'm from a small town, so I traveled to all these small towns as a kid playing sports. But uh, just hearing from all the people and how much pride they have in their hometowns, we kind of just got the idea together and it's been a, a blast ever since. Taz, there are some small towns in the field of 64 that people will have heard about and many of them that they have never heard about. This is really a great way to educate people, as you guys have done, on some of the, you know, the hidden gems in our area. Yeah, and we love focusing on 
the differences that these small towns have, but also when you listen to the the contests and the descriptions of the towns, you really do notice that they also have a lot in common. So we're we're hoping to bring the Taz and Jim listening area together while at the same time having people uh, cheer for their favorite town and go on Instagram. That's how we do the voting every day. Uh, you hop onto the Taz and Jim Instagram account and in our stories, it's really easy. You just it scrolls through the different matchups for that day, and you just vote on your favorite. So it's it's user friendly. It's a ton of fun, and it's a great way to show your your civic pride. Jim, you're getting your listeners uh, involved in deciding which small town is the best. Is there any criteria that they should keep in mind before they cast their ballot? I think it's just overall vibe, you know, tourist attractions, because every town's got something that will bring people in, whether it's like the Clinton Raceway or anything like that, you know, a small theater. I mean, we're talking about Port Burwell. They got the uh, the submarine decommission there near the beach. So the, every town's got a little something to it. Personally, me from a small town, I thought it was funny. As I grew up, I realized something. When I was in high school, I always hated all these other small towns that we would play <laughs> sports against and travel through. And then I went to Niagara College, met a bunch of these people from the towns and realized they are the exact the same, same as me and my friend. It's a real Shelbyville, Springfield thing yeah. going on. Like, Jim, you had Corn Fest in Mitchell, Ontario, where you grew up. And Mitchell Corn Fest is not much different than Zurich Bean Fest. Yeah, Waterford Pumpkin Fest. It's an excuse to drink and maybe have a softball tournament, right? Yes. Yes, anything with fest in it, that is, uh, <laughs> that's the order of the day. Uh, our guests on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Taz and Jim, host of the Taz and Jim Morning Show on Brother Station Y108. You can listen to them weekday mornings, 5.30 to 9. Taz, back to you. Is there a community in the small town tournament of 64 that was considered going into this thing as perhaps a favorite? Well, uh, Stony Creek, you got to think. Some people don't consider Stony Creek a, a small town. Some people would say it's part of Hamilton. However, they're in there. So, I, I mean, population, I think, does give you a big advantage. But we've had some smaller towns make it deep in years past by, you know, posting uh, on the bulletin board at the local legion or library, calling their fr- their family, Local friends. elementary school. Yeah, hmm. schools have gotten involved with the voting. So just because you have a larger population, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make it deep. Yeah, we like to say it's not the size of the town in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the town. That's a good way to put it. Jim, we'll stay with you here. Which town, we talk about favorites, which towns could be considered dark horses? Uh, it's it's basically the towns that, that that embrace it completely. So I think Port Burwell is one of those big ones. It's got the, like I said, the submarine. So they want tourists there. Tavistock, Ontario has the National Crokinole Tournament every year. So they get a lot of support for, for Tavistock. So I think it's good. In my opinion, I think Port Burwell and Tavistock are the two towns to look out this year. What about Little Mitchell, Ontario, where, Jim, you are from? What are the chances it goes all the way? I think before I started blabbing on the radio, it would have had a better chance, but I think people are sick of Mitchell at this point. We, we debated not even including Mitchell in the tournament because we thought they might have an advantage. Uh, Jim, if you drive into Mitchell, uh, it says home of Howie Morenz, who is a legendary NHL player, mm-hmm. but I don't think they're far off from putting 
the home of Jim Kelly from the Taz and Jim show on the Mitchell sign. So be a sad day. There's a little favoritism there that, <laughs> that concerns us a bit, but uh, thus far our Mitchell has not won the tournament. So it, it would be a big surprise and a big honor for you this year. Yeah. Jim. Cause we, what we do do a live broadcast from whatever town wins. I think they're glad I'm gone and don't want me back. <laughs> <laughs> that could be the case. Hey, you can vote in the small town tournament of 64 head over to the Taz and Jim Instagram page each morning, every morning over the next couple of weeks, guys, this is fantastic idea. Uh, congrats to whichever small town comes out on top. I, I think it's going to be uh, well worth uh, the, the time and effort that people are going to put into this thing and uh, good luck the rest of the way. Quickly, Rick, before we go, yeah. which small town is your favorite? Ooh. I'm going to go to one I've never been to or even heard about. Little Oil Springs, Ontario. How about that? Oh, now talk <laughs> about a dark horse. This one is tiny. <laughs> <laughs> we shall see. Guys, have fun with this. Thanks, Rick. You can check it out on the Taz and Jim Instagram page. Oil Springs up against Dorchester, Ontario. There's some really phenomenal small towns profiled in this tournament. We talked about Mitchell, Ontario and Stony Creek, uh, you know, Dundas, Grimsby, Portover, Tilsonburg, Forest, Alveston, Ingersoll, Dresden, uh, Cayuga, you name it, it's on the list of the small town tournament of 64 bracket. Check it out once again on the Taz and Jim Instagram page. It's a lot of fun with those guys. And you can listen to Taz and Jim each morning at 6.50 and 8.50 to learn which small town has advanced to the next round. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Every so often, I regale my coworkers about <laughs> a story that I still find funny to this day. And it revolves around when I used to do the play-by-play -play announcing for the Hamilton Tiger Cats here on 900 CHML. And during each and every game, Coach Sal and I would be in the booth and we would have you know, two, three, sometimes four or five bottles of water, depending on the temperature of the day. If it was a night game and cool in late October, you know, maybe a couple bottles of water would do. Maybe a cup of coffee as well. But if it was a hot summer day, like July or August, different story. So after each and every game, and this maybe started out in about, I don't know, year four or five, I, I would notice that, geez, after every game, I am peeing a lot. And not necessarily in frequency, just in, in terms of duration. I'd be at the urinal for what seemed like an eternity. I'm thinking, what is going on? I know I'm drinking water, but holy cow. So after one particular game, and I remember this well, it was one of the first games at IG Wealth Stadium uh, in Winnipeg. I thought, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to time myself to see how long in duration this pee is going to take. So I set up my stopwatch and bammo, there I go. And the clock is ticking. And I hit at the end, this is a continuous, I don't, don't want to get too graphic, a continuous stream of urination. And 96 seconds later, I thought, well, wow, that's got to be a world record. That was a long time at the urinal. Well, little did I know that the unofficial world record for longest pee duration is way more than 96 seconds. And if you want to give this a shot yourself, you know, after a day at work or whatever, whatever the case is, go to the washroom, time yourself, just figure out how long the steady stream of pee lasts. 
Send me a text on this, 905-645-3221, if you're trying it out this morning. If you get close to 96 seconds, you know you've consumed a lot of liquids. The unofficial world record for longest pee duration is 508 seconds. That's almost eight and a half minutes. Blowing my 96-second personal best out of the water. Pardon the pun. That's a long time. (laughs) Eight and a half minutes going pee. Wow. What did that person drink? Well, here's some fascinating pee uh, uh, stats for you and and facts. Pee obviously can be a a window to your overall health, right? It's going to give you information about your kidney and heart health and, and your liver function. The amount of bathroom trips that you take can also signal some health issues. If you have infrequent urination, that could indicate you're dehydrated or even have a kidney problem. 95% of your pee is actually water. 2.5% is urea. Another 2.5% a combination of salt, hormones, nutrients, and creatine. You didn't think you'd be learning anything in this pee talk, did you? Well, you are, aren't you? Over a lifetime, the kidneys will clean approximately 1 million gallons of water into pee. That's pretty cool. Pee that smells isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes it's just the food we eat, like asparagus, uh, alcohol, coffee, garlic. If your urine smells like any of the following, you're going to have to take note, including ammonia. That could indicate dehydration. If it's got a musty smell, that could mean liver disease. A foul smell could indicate a bladder infection, and a sweet smell could mean diabetes. So just be careful and and, uh, be cognizant of what your pee smells like and what it looks like. Because if it's brown or red, that's cause for alarm. Contact your doctor. It could could be kidney stones, could be liver damage, could be something else. You certainly want to get that checked out. Um, The average adult produces 6.3 cups of urine a day. Now, the bladder can hold about two and a half cups of urine at a time for up to two to five hours. That's slightly larger than a pint of beer. In comparison, a Clydesdale horse can urinate more than 72 cups a day. That's four and a half gallons. An elephant, a whopping 13 gallons or 208 cups of pee a day. That's a lot. Ancient Roman doctors actually told their patients to rinse their mouths with pee for whiter teeth. This is true. Surprisingly, this wasn't an entirely crazy idea either. The ammonia in urine can actually make your teeth whiter, but good luck finding the courage to swish it around your mouth. You'll definitely want to pound back the mouthwash after that. And please don't try this at home. And you shouldn't drink your pee either. If you happen to be lost in the desert without water, do not drink your urine. It's full of salt, which can actually make you more dehydrated instead of quenching your thirst. So if you've seen this in the movies, uh, not a good idea. As a man ages, the speed of his urine stream declines. This is interesting. Up to age 50, men pee faster than women. But then it starts to decline and women take the lead. So it's kind of the, the tortoise in the hair, I guess. Also, cat urine apparently glows under a black light. Did not know this, yeah. Black light can be used to detect many bodily fluids, but cat pee in particular lights up under the light. It contains phosphorus, which glows in the presence of oxygen, uh, even when a black light is not on. And the record for the greatest pee distance in history in 2016 is held by an American by the name of Micah Dinkle. He's got the Guinness World Record for... The greatest peeing distance. What is your guess on how far Micah Dinkle 
<laughs> I got to check out the name. Peed. You're thinking out. Six feet? That's that's a good shot. 10, 12, 15. No, keep going. 19 feet, six inches. That's 5.94 meters. I want to know who was the judge who had to <laughs> judge this contest. They have a ruler out, a measuring tape. Where did that person stand? Hopefully not in the line of fire. There's some fascinating PFACs for you here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode and make sure you rate and review.